Hey guys, I'm Adam Rappaport, and this is the Bon Appetit Foodcast. All right, this week we are talking two different bolognese recipes with our very own Andy Barragani. Uh, first up is BA's best bolognese, uh, the most streamlined version of this classic dish that admittedly still takes some time so that it reaches a state of perfection. Uh, and then there is our cauliflower bolognese, a vegetarian riff on the dish that subs in cauliflower and mushrooms for the ground meat. After that, I sit down with Basically Editor Emil Stonic and our social media whiz, Emily Schultz, uh, to go through a package in our March issue, A Beginner's Guide to Buying and Enjoying Wine. All right, let's do this. Here is Andy Bergani. Andy Bolognese Bergani, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you. It's been a minute. It has. Listen, I'm going to get right to it. You know how much I love Bolognese. I do know. I think we all know at BA that you love bolognese. <laughs> but, I, but so do you, right? I do love bolognese. I think we, we both have a lot of opinions, a lot of shared uh, opinions. Uh, I think everybody has their thoughts on this iconic dish. And uh, I think we did justice. It's funny because when you were developing the recipe for BA's best bolognese, I wanted to argue with you more than I was able to because like, weirdly we were almost on the exact same frequency. Yes. You, but you're the one who had actually – develop the recipe, and when you're developing the recipe, you have to go through all the steps and measure and do all those things that we home cooks kind of don't do. But you're like, if this is going to go on the site, in the magazine, I've got to get it right. I kind of forgot how this even came up. Was it your idea or my idea where we just were, we didn't have a BA's Best Bolognese? I think I brought up the issue that there wasn't like a basic Bolognese and one that didn't have to be like laboriously time consuming, but still took the requisite amount of time to coax out the most flavor and texture, et cetera, et cetera of this sort of iconic sauce. So mm-hmm. so from a recipe developer standpoint, where do you start with a recipe like this? Like what's what's square one? Well, I did my research. I definitely uh, had made a few different versions of bolognese. I made one where uh, I would hand cut the beef. I did ones with different uh, amounts of pork fat in the form of bacon or guanciale or pancetta. I've done versions with red wine versus white wine. And then I just kind of started researching the classics from Marcello Hazan, Paul Bertoli, Alice Waters, Silver Spoon, uh, and saw what I thought made sense, what I agreed with, what I didn't agree with, and then kind of brought that all together and came up with my own version or our own version Yes. Uh, for BA's Best Bolognese. So one thing I think where a lot of people... I guess you could say there's a misconception, um, maybe um, kind of like the quote-unquote meat sauce that a lot of us grew up with like in the 70s or 80s. Um, what's interesting about bolognese is there's actually very little tomato involved. Very little tomato. I actually don't want any uh, fresh tomato or canned tomato. The only form of tomato I want in my bolognese is tomato paste. So it infuses that with that sort of rich umami tomato flavor, but not like tomato saucy. So exactly. so if not that like so walk us through it. like where do you start with the bolognese? I start with uh, with pork fat. Uh, so I render out pancetta. I chose pancetta with this recipe just because I love the flavor. If you really can't find it, you can use bacon, no biggie. And I but just not, but not smoked bacon. Not smoked bacon. Yeah. And then I just take some thinly sliced uh, pancetta, just chop it up really fine, and then I render it in a dry pan. Pancetta you can find it most you know, markets, Italian markets, and you can just tell the guy behind the counter, like, yeah, give me a, a half inch, and exactly. they'll just cut it through that that log of pancetta, and it's like Italian unsmoked bacon. Exactly. But Easy. And there's already so much fat, there's, it's unnecessary to add any additional fat in the form of olive oil. And so you'll it. chop it up, or? I'll chop it up, yeah. finely chop, add it to a dry pan, and then put it to, like, medium heat and let it render slowly. So you get all that fat out of the pancetta, and then it, until it becomes nice and crisp, Scoop that out, and then I add my uh, sofrito or mirepoix, which is a mix of onion, carrot, and celery. That's uh, you can finally chop yourself. I just add all of it to a food processor yeah. and then pulse it up. I think you would want it actually not quite pureed, but you don't want it big chunks, right? I don't want I don't want you to see the carrots. Yeah. I don't want you to see the onion. I don't want you to see the celery. I that's why I choose a food processor. And so it all becomes one mixture. Exactly. Almost where it's a paste. Yeah. Uh, just extremely fine. I add that to the pan with the that has the rendered fat. And then I cook that down. I don't necessarily brown it. I just get it really, really soft um, and cooks out. And then once that happens 
That's when I add the ground meat. Okay, so let's talk meat. So obviously, you need meat in a bolognese. We had talked about this once on a podcast with Carl about meatballs. Are we doing beef? Are we doing the whole beef pork veal thing? Or what? Mm-hmm. How what, did you experiment with that? When it came to the pork, I didn't necessarily want to use ground pork, but I wanted to use a pork product, mm-hmm. as in a salty pork product. Whether that again, guanciale, pancetta, yeah. or bacon. In regards to the actual meat, I just thought I wanted to go with beef, yeah. just regular good old chuck. Uh, I skipped the veal. Uh, I've didn't want people to buy a piece of. Uh, meat where they had to chop it themselves. Like yeah, that's I've done insane. In the you past. did that one day. Why? What were you doing? You know, I did that one day. I did that because it's based off a of uh, Paul Bertoli recipe, where he takes skirt steak and he hand chops it. It's like eighth inch diced uh, skirt steak, and what you get is this incredible texture. That is such a wannabe chef thing to no, do. Well, I, don't, Paul, I, don't, I don't mean him. I mean you being the wannabe <laughs> chef. <laughs> And it's well. It, the thing is, like, I think I did this maybe ten years ago. Like once in a blue moon, have have made it since. But um, it's amazing. You get this incredible uh, texture to it, and you really taste the meat. But with this, I went with ground meat. Once you kind of render the pancetta fat and all that, that's when I actually add the meat to that. So hold on, the sofrito. I I jumped a step. So when you cook out your pancetta. You have uh, you have the crispy bits. You remove that, and then you're gonna add little like golf ball sized pieces of ground meat to the. Pan. Oh, wait, wait, wait! So you're you do the sofrito after the ground beef? Yes. Ooh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're take you're peeling off little balls, little golf little ball chunks. size, yeah, little chunks. So you're not just throwing it all in there at once. And no, you're, no, and no. you're calling for this uh, for one pound, which is not that much, but it's no, a, it's you not. Know, it's like a little. And you're not trying to brown the meat too hard. You just mm. have these little clumps of meat, and it just gets a little bit of color in spots. It's probably pink in the center. Mm-hmm. It'll be gray and brown in some spots, and that's it. It's going to finish cooking in the sauce. So I'm not breaking it up and smashing it up? No, that'll happen later. Okay, so now I've got these little golf balls. I like the golf yeah. analogy. Do I, do I remove those now? You remove the balls. Okay. Add the sofrito. Cook that down. And then you add your pancetta and your meat back into the pot. Okay. That's when you start smashing the meat. Okay. And I don't brown the meat too hard because if you brown ground meat really hard, it becomes like this dry rubber band. Just kind of pebbly. Yes. Not so good. And then once you got that going, I add one cup white wine. So this is another thing. I think people who haven't made bolognese before because it's like, what we kind of think of as a red sauce type sauce. You're like, oh, well, if, you make, if I'm going to order pasta bolognese, I'm going to get a nice bottle of Chianti yeah, or, yeah. or Barbera or whatever. But we're adding white wine. I like white wine. I think a lot of the recipes, you, they went both ways. I saw recipes that use red or white. I like white just because you already have a lot going on with the pancetta with ground meat, tomato paste. I wanted something a little bit more delicate, yeah. and I just think it lets everything else kind of shine through. It's and a bit not subtle, or yeah. Sometimes you get like you know, if you got a, like a Barolo or something, it's like mm-hmm. it, it kind of it's too assertive. You know, it, it makes too much of a statement. Mm-hmm. And in your case, you just want to bring in some fruity acid and some good sort of, acidity. Yeah. And when I add that wine at this point, it's on like medium low low heat oh that low okay yeah really low and it takes about 20 minutes i believe for it to cook down it doesn't happen in like four or five minutes it's really really slow because i don't want anything on medium high once i add all those components together the meat the sofrito and the pancetta i want everything to just cook really low and slow. so this is not like one of those like restaurant cook recipes where you're on a fiery no, hot stove the, and flames no. everywhere you if there's take, take one time. big thing to take away from this recipe is just like Go really slow with it. Sunday afternoon, you got nothing to do. Absolutely. Don't try to be making this on a Monday. Once you add the wine and it has cooked off, that's when I add it. Is there a way you know that it's cooked off? Uh, When the pan is pretty much dry. Okay, so you're looking. Exactly. And then I add a third cup tomato paste. This is the ingredient that I played with the most. It started with two tablespoons, then it went to a quarter cup, then I went to a third cup. And I wanted, what I was doing with that is I was trying to achieve, one, the right color, it needed to be, I don't want it to look like a red sauce, but mm-hmm. it needed to have the right color. I don't want it to be too brown. Uh, and I wanted the sauce to impart good acidity from the tomato paste. And I wanted that umami flavor. And so it could take up to a third cup tomato paste. And when you add tomato paste to, to this or any sort of stew, like you want the tomato paste to cook a little bit, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. This takes about, sometimes if it's a small amount, it takes maybe 
three minutes to cook down. This goes for six to eight minutes, and it just will darken. That's how you know, and it'll start to stick to the pot. Yep. That's when you know it's ready to keep going. Uh, from there, I add a bay leaf. I like a bay leaf in my bolognese. I think it's one of those secret ingredients. Yeah, a fresh bay leaf does wonders. I swear, Laurel Bay, if you could find it. Maxine Rampaport, when I was growing up, she was throwing a bay leaf in everything. I'm like, why do do we we need the bay leaf, Mom? This is, I promise you, one of the most streamlined, simple versions of this. You throw a bay leaf in. You throw a bay leaf in. And then I add some freshly grated nutmeg. I like nutmeg in my bolognese. I don't think that's too much ass. I think it should have a bit of. That's kind of a very northern Italian thing, right? Mm, I, I I didn't know that, but yeah, well, no, but you also see it with like the cream dish, like a bechamel sort of with base sauce and whatnot. Yeah, you'll see the grated nutmegs in. in I there. think it does wonder. You shouldn't necessarily taste the nutmeg, but it's just enough to kind of be like, hmm. This it's also is... like if you make a good homemade mac and cheese, oh, there's yeah. often a little nutmeg in there. Yes, yeah, it does. It's one of those things you don't know it if you're eating it, but there's a little something something. Mm-hmm. You've built a lot of layers of flavors. A lot of layers. You have your sofrito, the meat, the pancetta, the wine is cooked out, the tomato paste is uh, sticking to the pot, you have the bay leaf in there, and the nutmeg. Then I add two cups of stock, chicken stock I go for. Not beef stock, not veal stock. Again, something subtle. Something subtle, and it's all about letting the ingredients kind of come together and shine and not have one takeover. And so I go for chicken stock. If you make your own, that would be ideal. If not, go for low-sodium version. So can I just say one thing, which is – and I know this is not every say, but there's this uh, movement, I don't know, of a lot of good – "Quote unquote artisanal butchers these days. Um, you see a lot in New York, from Fleischer's to Dixon's Farm Stand, and all these places where you can—they all have really good stock in their freezer cases. Oh, yeah, you can buy of- a quart or a couple quarts, and it's so good to have. They got the good stuff. Take it home, leave it in your freezer, and then when you want to make bolognese a week or two later, you bring it out. Exactly. They have the good stuff. It's going to be a little bit more expensive than the box stuff, but definitely. it's, but it's, it's worth definitely it. worth it. Uh, so you're going to be adding two cups of chicken stock and then a cup of whole milk, which is mm. pretty traditional. Yeah. You see, if there's any dairy in this recipe, it usually comes in the form of uh, whole milk. I don't. I think cream or half of uh, half and half is way too much. It's unnecessary. I'm going to get to that in a second. Okay. All right. So that. So at this point, this now this is I think where you and I differed a bit because I think with the exception of the bay leaf, I'm like step by step with you. Mm-hmm. Got the milk. Got the chicken stock. Put it on. It's all in a nice Dutch oven or whatever mm-hmm. over medium low heat. Medium low. At this, at, low this medium is low. low. You should basically see a bubble or every, two every now and then. Every now and then, <laughs> and you're taking a wooden spoon, uh, or if you have like a, uh, a potato masher, and you're just mashing down on that meat every so often. But just, what, what does every so often mean? I'm like every. 10 minutes, every okay. 15 minutes. It really just to break that meat up. And so uh, it just becomes like little beads and becomes develops this velvety texture. Mm. Right, so I'm mo- more impatient than you are. I-, I would probably, I'm like, oh, after an hour and 15 minutes, I'm like, this mm-hmm. is good. Like, how much more can it get? So when you add all the liquid, we say uh, till cook uncovered so that the liquid can evaporate and stirring occasionally until meat is very very tender so we say two to two and a half hours yeah. we tried it at the three hour mark and i don't think it was uh, that much more special but really the key to this is like for the meat to be tender and for a lot of the liquid to evaporate you don't really want too much liquid you want it to be almost what i describe as like a sloppy joe texture mm, in the end yes because you're going to be adding more liquid in the form of pasta water okay so let's get to that so you've got this beautiful sauce a couple hours on the stove you're all right, we're ready to eat or when you are ready to eat you make sure it's warm that's another thing where I, th- I think like in the old days you would see like a bowl of pasta and then they would spoon the sauce exactly. on top of the pasta and the pasta was all kind of stuck together. We That's know better how, now. Yes, yes. So, no, you, so what's the way to do it? So you have, I have this big stock pot or Dutch oven of bolognese. How do I assemble the pasta itself? So this is when you're marrying the pasta and bolognese. And by the way, once the um, bolognese reaches that kind of that sloppy Joe texture, I say, that's when it's ready where either you assemble or you could just pack it up and freeze it. Yeah. So you have your pasta and I, my preferred shapes are pappardelle, tagliatelle, or uh, a short wide pasta like rigatoni. Pacari would also be good. And those first two is also, if you're willing to spend the few extra dollars, there are a lot of those good, like, kind of fresh dried like egg noodle brands yes. that you see out there that have like you'll see at places like Italy that mm-hmm. are coming the nice imported packages and the pasta is really yellow. Yes. And if you have tagliatelle or pappardelle, it's really nice to buy. Go for that. And then you whatever the package says, 
I would knock two minutes down. So if it says like however many minutes so for al dente. Say it says 10 minutes. You're saying do it at eight. Do it at eight. Remove uh, the pasta. Take about, we say, a cup of uh, pasta water. Add that to the bolognese. See, I'm going to do. All right. So why? Hmm. Tell me where you are differ. Th- or this is where I would differ in the sense that it depends. I might have this nice big pot of bolognese, but say I'm only serving maybe two or four. Mm-hmm. I would take a couple of spoonfuls of the bolognese, put that in a saute pan and warm that up. And then I would add the pasta water to the saute pan because maybe I don't want to put all of the pasta into the bolognese because I might not want some leftover bolognese. You know what I mean? I don't want you know, does that make sense? Well, yeah, but that's a very specific situation well, right no, there. It's that not, you no, it's not. But a lot of people like you don't necessarily you aren't necessarily going to eat all of the bolognese. If, you, if with you're the, not going to this is if you're not going to cook all the bolognese, then set that aside, freeze, and do what you need. But in this case, you really oh, so you're saying okay, so maybe you you're okay. I get you. This says six servings. If you're there's only four of you, take out a little bit from the bowl from exactly. the from the pot, put that in a container, but still use. The big pot. Okay, gotcha. Yes, yes. All right, so so in goes the pasta water over it, and then you turn the heat on. And then yeah, you turn the heat on, medium heat. You add some parmesan, half cup, finely grated, like with a microplane, yeah, or um, or, or using a box grater. And then I bring that to a simmer. Then I add the pasta. Okay. Okay. And then I let it go until mm. it's al dente, and the sauce begins to cling on to the pasta, and it becomes just oh. looks like. The dish that we all love yeah. and uh, and crave, and then from there, I don't finish with anything. I know a lot of our pastas finish with bu- butter. I was taught to finish most of my pastas with butter. This is unnecessary. There's already a good amount of fat going on in and this cheese. dish, and cheese, and cheese, and that sort of like binds it in a way that sort of yeah. pulls it all together. The parmesan helps the sauce cling onto the pasta, so and it smells delicious. Well, the problem is this: like, oh, this actually just says four servings. I was looking at the other our other bolognese recipe, which this is four. Big servings. We're using. We're calling for yeah. a pound of pasta, but this is for very generous servings with probably some leftovers. No, I, the, the, my thing is this: I if if the pasta is mixed in with the sauce, I'm gonna eat it. I'm not putting that in the fridge. <laughs> there's no uh, way that's getting in the no, fridge. No, I don't want leftover. I don't yeah. like uh, pasta. Something you got to eat right then and well, there. Well, yeah. If, yeah. The, if the noodles are cooked, I'm yes. eating them. I'm not yes. gonna like rewarm it with the sauce because then because if I do. I love leftover bolognese, but I would rather go through that whole process of like warming it up, putting the pasta water in, fresh noodles, and, and that's yes, great. But absolutely. warming up leftover noodles already sauced. It's never No, it's never good. All right. God, that's good. BA's Best Bolognese. You can find it on bonapetit.com. But you know what else you can find on bonapetit.com, Andy? I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. Cauliflower yes! bolognese, which you developed uh, for our healthyish website at yeah. behealthyish.com. Go if you're listening right now, listeners. Obviously, you are because you're listening. Go to yeah, cauliflower bolognese on healthyish or bon appetit, and you look at this, and there's like rigatoni noodles with this looks exactly like right? it does bolognese. Yep, looks delicious. I can smell it and taste it, but there's no meat in there. There's no meat at all. This is one of those recipes. That, uh, I mean, Amanda Shapiro, the editor of Healthyish, she knows how I get. I like I'll. I can't sleep, and I'll start slacking her. What we use to message each other here at BA, or uh, or I'll text her and saying like, I have this weird idea. It's like maybe making bolognese out of cauliflower. And she's like, okay, and she she lets me do it. Okay, but I would say this: like, I I, w- I can imagine this a dish being like when I was at college at Berkeley. One of my vegetarian friends would invite me over, like, oh, I'm making over this, like, yeah. Cauliflower pasta, it's like bolognese. I'd be like, oh god. Well, I'm a Berkeley boy, so yeah, I have you, it you in are me. too. Yeah. But I, but you, <laughs> you understand what good pasta is. Yes. So, so I'm going to trust you on this one. So it's so you're kind of the same process. You're essentially subbing bo- chopped up bolognese and mushrooms. Yes, for the I'm, meat. I'm, uh, cauliflower. Yeah, I mean, cauliflower, and mushroom yeah. uh, and substitute for the meat. And really, it's kind of I wanted to get the right texture and consistency and look the flavor wise like it's obviously not a meat sauce so i wouldn't say that it tastes like a a classic bolognese but the way it looks and the texture texture of it where it's the the piece of the cauliflower almost mimics the meat in that sense and that's done by pulsing the cauliflower in a food processor I'm trying to remember that recipe because it was a f- months ago. Do you have it in front of you, Adam? Yeah, apparently you didn't print it out. You just <laughs> no, I just, <laughs> yeah, I just, I just, I just, pr- I'm handing the, the laptop to Andy. 
He develops many, many recipes many, many for recipes. Bon Appetit every month. So it, I call for 12 ounces mushrooms. It could be shiitake or cremini. And then one head of cauliflower, which is about two and a quarter pounds, let's say. And then I just kind of tear that up into florets. And I also pulse that until it's about like quarter inch pieces, which is kind of mimics ground beef mm-hmm. size. And then from there, uh, I'll work it in batches. Once, yeah, you pulse the cauliflower. And then you heat oil about a quarter cup and then you add the mushrooms cook that down until they're golden brown and they shrink and then i add one onion that's been finely chopped and then i continue cooking that down until it's soft and golden brown then i add six garlic cloves that have been thinly sliced Mm. it needs a lot of garlic since there's not a lot of other things going on there's no pork fat there's no there's no meat fat yeah. yeah But, but what I think is nice about mushrooms, and people talk about this a lot, like a well-browned mushroom is often people describe as meaty yes, in taste. exactly. And it gets that nice roasty deep flavor. I think it does a lot to this dish. I mean, if it was just cauliflower, I think it would be fine, but I think those the 12 ounces of mushrooms definitely gives it more substance. And, and does the cauliflower thing get browned also in the The cauliflower fat? gets lightly brown. Uh-huh. It's, not, uh, it doesn't, it's not a deep, dark brown. Yeah. It doesn't caramelize that much. And then I add uh, sliced garlic, dried chili flakes. I just think you, in this dish, you need some Mm. kind of heat. And then two tablespoons finely chopped rosemary. And I cook that until the garlic is very soft. Can and we can we talk about the rosemary? Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> what do you want to talk about? Well, I, I heard there were a few comments, and I myself am curious about the rosemary. So I will say, what were the comments about the rosemary? I don't know. You don't read the comments? Oh, you're talking about the reader's comments. Yes. yes. So <laughs> I think that some people are, you either love rosemary or you don't like rosemary. I don't think it's, that's one of those, I think with this dish. It's a confident herb. Yeah, it's there. It's present. Could you, could you swap? Could I put thyme instead of rosemary or something? I think thyme is more annoying than rosemary, (laughs) picking those little leaves. It is. Like, I think you could, you could use What about oregano? Oregano is a very popular Can we put that in the recipe? Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. You can add. I just find uh, rosemary is a very piney herb and I love it with lamb or something, but Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's a lot. That's fine. You could go ahead with oregano. I would use fresh oregano, yep. not dried oregano, yep. though. So you add that, and your pan is still pretty dry now. You have the onions, the mushrooms, uh, the ch- the garlic, the chilies, the rosemary. And then I add tomato paste, a third cup. That's, again, a good amount of tomato paste. One for the color, also for the umami and for acidity. I cook that down until it slightly darkens and, again, sticks to the pot, similar to a classic bolognese. And then I add the cauliflower that's been finely minced in a food processor. And I cook that. That takes about six to eight minutes. It's going to release some steam and water. And you just want to cook that until that's the pan's really, really dry. Season that with salt. This dish can take yeah. a good amount of salt. And then once this, that's kind of your base right there, this cauliflower mixture. Uh, it's still pretty dry. You're not adding any liquid to this because everything's pretty much cooked. And the liquid that you are going to add, it's going to be in the form of pasta water. So you have your pasta cooking. Uh, again, I kind of went with the classic bolognese shape. So that's a rigatoni, uh, tagliatelle, or pappardelle. I did rigatoni in this case. I cooked that for about 12 minutes, two minutes uh, before it's al dente. And then add the pasta uh, and pasta water. I add one cup of pasta water and two tablespoons butter. Yeah, because in your mind, you need the butter because you don't have the pork fat or beef fat. You just you need something lush. It's not a lot of butter. You yeah. need that fat. Just one. It's just gonna bring the sauce together, and already it's a very lean dish. You just don't have a lot of fat in it besides olive oil. If you're vegan, would you just add some more olive oil then, I guess? Yeah, I would use, I would add more olive oil. I mean, mm-hmm. olive oil is as incredible as it is. It doesn't have that kind of magical effect like butter has with with pasta. And then once you have the butter added to the to the pot with the pasta and pasta liquid, then you're just tossing mm-hmm. constantly until the sauce begins to cling. I add a bit of parmesan um, here. That also helps with the sauce, the sauce to cling onto the pasta. And then that's when it's kind of ready to serve. And then I add a little bit of chopped parsley right before I start dividing among bowls. Just something bright and fresh. Just something to bring it back to life. Like I think a little bit of chopped parsley goes a long way in this dish. And then plate it up, add a little bit more olive oil and more Parmesan and call it a day. 
when are we shooting when are we shooting our uh, bolognese video have you shot that yet i haven't done that but they've been telling me that i'm gonna do it i actually said no like wait 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 and now right. I I'm, guess coming, I'm coming I'm, I'm, I'm coming on set for that one yeah it's a good one it's uh, a really good dish all right you can check out andy's both of his bolognese recipes at bonapetit.com uh ba's best bolognese and cauliflower bolognese and look for a video soon thanks andy thanks adam Okay, thanks to Andy Bergani, and now we have Emil and Emily talking wine. So, Emily Schultz, welcome to the pod. Oh, thank you. We're recording. Wow, cool. Emil. Hi. We're talking wine. Wine. The basically guide to the wine. basically guide to wine. Cheers to that. Cheers to yeah. that. Yeah. It's uh, like 3 p.m. on a Friday. Good yep. time for a glass of wine. Great time for a glass of wine. What are you guys drinking? We are drinking uh, a little pre-release of a wine called the Marini that mm. our friend Andy Young makes. This label's called St. Reginald's Parish from Oregon. And he's actually going to be in the pod a couple weeks from now, something like that. And it'll, Emma just nodded. It'll be on in a future pod in a few weeks. But he's from like New Orleans, Louisiana, moved to Oregon. Yeah, son of a preacher, son of a Baptist Literally. preacher. Did not grow up Don't drinking wine. Don't give too much away. Oh, yeah. Sorry. We'll yeah. keep it for the next pod. So this, all right, so this, this, this discussion is about some just basic tips for buying and drinking wine at home. I'm gonna start off, I think I'm probably like a lot of people, I like to drink wine, I enjoy it at dinner, but when I walk into a wine store, I see this like whole wall of wine and I I literally just freeze. I'm like, ah, uh, I, I don't, it all looks the same, I don't know what to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, you know, the thing that really helped me to turn a corner and feel less overwhelmed by like the crazy wide world of wine was picking one or two wine stores, ideally like near work or near my house, that I w became a regular at. Instead of just going, you know, I used to, when I would buy wine, I would go to like all these different stores, whatever was closest, whatever was convenient, and you know, Every time you go in, you're looking at different wine. So if you have a couple of stores that you like, ideally places that are focused on wine, you know, if it's not too much to ask, a place that focuses on, you know, small and ind independent producers, not like big, you know, corporate wine, then you're going to walk in and you're going to all of a sudden you're going to get a bottle that you like and then you're going to come back and you're going to see that bottle again. And you're gonna be like, oh, yeah, that wine. And then you're also going to be able to you know, come in and maybe maybe the people who work there are going to start to recognize you. Maybe you're going to have a conversation with them and it's going to feel like less weird than like asking a stranger at a wine store every time where you're going to find the light juicy reds or the like really crisp whites, you know. They, they come to know your taste, you come to know their taste. And more than one time I've like had a person at a wine store that I've been like, I don't talk to that guy. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't get me. He doesn't get me. But I think that's an interesting point about whether either close to where you live or close to where you work. That is like it doesn't have to you're like, oh yeah, that actually place is nearby. Like Schultz, do you go to Chamber Street or where do you do all work? the time? Which is a few blocks from here. Yeah. I also think going off of that, following them on Instagram. Oh um, my, what do you mean? Explain. So especially because like so much inventory is coming in and out. I find that a lot of the wine stores that do have those like small batch limited release wines post on Instagram before they would like update their website or newsletter or anything like that. I never even thought about a wine store. Having oh yeah, an Instagram my account. the only people I follow are like wine stores. Really? So Schultz is like lined up outside of Chamber Street like Saturday morning at like 9 a.m. like a supreme drop. <laughs> um, saying, like, there have been times when I've DM'd wine stores like, can you just save me a bottle? I'm coming after work. Wow. So, uh -oh. so, so that's a little, that's extreme. That's but extreme. I also don't think it's extreme because if you see something that, I don't know, has a cool label or the color is really pretty, you can kind of do some research on your own before you go into the wine store. Oh. and learn a little bit about See, that's that. good because when you're at the wine store, sometimes, like I said, I have performance anxiety in the wine store. and Like, oh, I got to be somewhere, and I'm looking like, oh, okay, I'll just grab that. Whereas uh, if you have time on the way there to read up the wine. I also I, think that following your favorite wine shop on Instagram is a good way to remind you that it exists. True. <laughs> too. I true. sometimes follow accounts on Instagram, and I'm like, remember that that brand exists because you meant to go to that store you or like whatever. It. You're like, yeah. oh, right. Wine. It's interesting you mentioned like the salespeople. There's a little wine shop near where I live on 8th Avenue in Chelsea, the Foragers Wine Shop. And it's nice in that there's not a lot to choose from, which I kind of yeah, like, you know, totally. it's not overwhelming. Um, there's a couple of salespeople and one of the guys, he sees me fairly often. 
and I'll ask him about a bottle. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah you'll like that one. Because he yeah. remembers that if, well, if you like that, then you're going to like that. And that's similar to that. And he kind of like, they get you dialed in. Totally. That's a dream. And, you know, a lot of places, if a lot of those kind of smaller, like cool boutique wine stores that are small and have like a limited, you know, manageable selection, a lot of them will have like loyalty programs and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. Like a couple of stores that I go to where like, you know, you give your name and then you'll get points towards like a free bottle of wine or something like that. But they're also keeping track of what you've been buying if you have like an account with them. So it's like, I'll be like, did I have this before? And they're like, oh yeah, you drank this, like, uh, you know, you bought this like two months ago. And you're like, I did like that, that was okay. good. Okay, well let me ask you a question. Let's say your wife, for instance, lives in Buffalo, and when you go visit the in-laws, John is drinking vodka on the rocks, Linda doesn't drink at all, so you've got to go to the wine store in suburban Buffalo where you don't know anyone, you're not familiar with this selection. Are there any sort of things I can use to sort of narrow the scope about what I should buy when you go to an unknown wine store with, where you don't know the salespeople? Well, I definitely think there are certain grapes that you can look for mm -hmm. where you know they're going to be reliable, even if it's in a more corporate wine versus the small batch stuff that we gravitate towards. What do you do in this instance if you're going to a, a bigger, more suburban store that doesn't have the cool indie wines? Like, What do you do? Like, what am I going to buy? Yeah, what are you looking for? How do you narrow your scope about, all right, I'm going to look at this, but not all this stuff? I tend to go for red over white. Um, Interesting. I find that some, like, the cheaper whites sometimes are too sweet mm -hmm. for me. My mom really likes all those kind of, like, mid-Italy wines, so I usually do that because when I'm in these instances, I'm with her, and I find that those are always really reliable. But I'll usually just use like my own judgment over the people who work at the store. Right. I feel no like offense. often that's a, that's a case where I'm like, I don't think that I'm going to get what I'm looking for out of my like my customer service experience necessarily. So I do kind of go rogue. I mean, there are certain things that I look for, like Vino Verde, which is like dumb cheap. You know, it's like normally like eight to twelve dollars a bottle. It's like a slightly fizzy it literally means green wine it's like a slightly fizzy wine from portugal and it's low alcohol it's super light it's super bracing you i like, like i like to describe that as the sierra mist of portugal duh. wow <laughs> it's, it's just like you can just throw it back yeah portugal that, if you need a new branding director <laughs> and that like you can find that almost anywhere and it's like gonna kind of over deliver. Yeah, I have. I, I feel the same about Gruner Veltliners from mm -hmm. Austria, which come with the screw tops with the red and white top. I think those are super easy to drink with the whites. I have more. I have more problem with the reds, mm. in that sometimes I'm not sure. Like, well, like some is it 2011? Is that too old? Or like, I'm trying to figure out the, the vintages come into play more. Yeah. Do you have like a go-to red that you like to rely on, Emil? I don't know. I mean, you were talking about Austrian wines, and I, you know, I think increasingly you're seeing a lot of Austrian wines more widely available. Um, so you, you were talking about Grüner Veltliner, which, you know, often comes in a liter bottle, often has like a crown cap, more like a beer cap. And those tend to be really affordable, crisp, bracing. Red-wise, Zweigelt. Oh, which yes. Which actually starts with an S or a ZW, Zweigelt. That's another Austrian wine that whenever I've been in kind of an unfamiliar liquor store and, and seen a bottle of that, I'm like, I'm going to give that a try. Because it's like, you know, in that kind of like light, drinkable, juicy yeah. red wine category. I mean, again, this is it's super hard to make those kinds of generalizations about about wine because it's like any grape can be made any way, you know, can be grown in a lot of different places, like dif different style, you know, d like wines that come from a a certain it's it's hard to generalize about regions or grapes you do what you can yeah but that's the tough thing about wines like you for the most part you literally don't know until you've tasted it right. whereas totally. i can walk into a butcher shop i can look at a steak and i can go oh that's a good looking steak totally. You know? uh, totally or the green market in the summer you know a good tomato kind of when you see it yeah i mean i would I, say red wise also just we've talked a lot we like gamay in the sense the grape from france and just easy to drink mm -hmm. buy it relatively young vintage it's not like a big wine that needs to age etc cetera, etc cetera. Right. i mean i think the other thing that is important to to note is that like if you're a person you know like the three of us who drink wine really regularly every bottle that you buy you're learning something about Agreed. wine you know you're learning about maybe you're learning about an importer that you really like or maybe you're learning about a, a grape or a region and you know you, you've got some kind of intel even if it's not a bottle that you love you yeah you learn something can Completely we agree. can we talk about importers because that's something that not until i've been hanging out with you guys at bon appetit did i ever even think 
to look at the back of the label to see who the importer is and what that might say about a wine. Yeah, I think that's a little 2.0, but... Let's just go there. It's we're Friday going afternoon. there. So a lot of importers, especially in the wines that we at Bon Appetit like to drink... Um, and that being kind of that natural wine that world, natural wine, producer. Yeah, totally. Their name will be on the back of the bottle, and that's kind of how you can tell that it is a natural wine. For example, Zev Rovine is a big name producer, I guess, in New York City. And so Importer. Big name importer. Yes. Yes, importer. You said producer. So is that who else? Who are, so who are some other names you guys um, mentioned? Louis, Louis Dresner. Dresner uh-huh. Jenny and Francois. Oh, yeah, Jenny and mm-hmm. Francois. I hear that. Francois. Selection mm-hmm. Massal. It's almost like a record label. Selection. Like a, yeah, like a cool general. indie record label. Like, oh, if you like Discord, then you'll probably, you know, that's right. Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, and I, I think that analogy holds because, you know, again, when you're talking about just like narrowing the field, when you're yeah. just trying to figure out like what you like and how to get it, which I think is the real blockage for a lot of people around wine, I, that was another, like, when I started going into to the a certain kind of wine store and like going into a few different wine stores a w- another way that I further kind of narrowed that category is, is like I'm like oh I love all of the wines that I've had that Jenny and Francois have totally. imported so um you know I'm or just someone tra- like Kermit, I'm just someone like Kermit Lynch Kermit Lynch yeah, yeah, yeah who's like the OG and like, so you can ask the wine store, like, hey, do you have any Kermit Lynch wines? Yeah, you know, hopefully they they yeah. would have something. But I mean, I've found that to go back to like you know being in, you know a stranger in a strange land, like at the liquor store near my parents' house, I will look around and you know if I see a wine that's imported by Kermit Lynch. I mean, he's like a much larger in scale than some of the smaller guys we were talking about, but he has a commitment to you know certain kinds of wines and certain kinds of like farming practices and that kind of thing. So it's like you just have a sense that it's going to be like a you know, a tick or two better. I think it's interesting you'd also talk about every time you have a wine, you learn something. And to your point, like following people on Instagram, like the more you invest in it on your side, the more you get out of it. The more you remember things, the more you write things down, the more you save things on your Instagram account that you'll then have that when you go into the wine store next time, you'll have that sort of battery of sort of info to draw right and just like to be really clear like none of us like nobody at bon appetit is like a wine expert Correct. you know what i mean we just like you know with the exception of marissa marissa a ross marissa uh, a ross who's marissa in california shout out marissa Hi. shout out to marissa she's um, listening to this right now like rolling her she's like oh my god <laughs> Guys, we shut that you up. total noobs <laughs> um but you know it's like i i feel like for me the moment that i got excited about wine was when i realized i didn't need to know everything about wine in order yeah. to drink it i just needed to figure out how I could get the wine that I like to drink. And I've learned a lot in that time, but you know, I feel like most of what I've learned about wine is in the last like three years or so. Okay, speaking of Marissa Ross, I think she does like an amazing job writing about wine in unexpected ways and and using her very unique lingo to do so. But like when we walk into a wine store and we're talking to a salesperson, we do have to employ some of those like conventional wine terms. And, and I guess I'm just curious to you guys, like how do you communicate to a salesperson what it is exactly that you want from a bottle of wine? Yeah, I like to start with the fruits that I really like, which I normally go towards those like summer berries. So talking about cherries or blackberries, really like ripe, juicy um, summer fruit, um, which normally can be found in those light gamets like you were talking about. Mm. Um, so, and that's like in kind of contrast to like the kind of darker jam, like the, the, I feel like there's like fresh fruit and like cooked fruit. Yeah, you totally. Know? Or like dried fruit. Jammy, you know? as they like to say. Yeah, which isn't, nece- you know, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I, I also am inclined towards the so like all right, so my like Victoria Rappaport, my sister, like she loves a bottle of Merlot. That's is that more on the jammy side of things, maybe, or I, you know, I mean, it, I think that's <laughs> Emil's really, never Emil's, Emil's never had a glass of Merlot. Nope. The first <laughs> natural wine that I ever had that I loved was a chilled Merlot at okay. Romans, and I was completely confused about like how to find wine like that. Yeah, I would go into stores and be like, "Do you have like a Merlot that you would serve kind of cold?" Or like, do you have an unfiltered Merlot? I was just like, I had no idea like what the deal. And so like, yeah, like Merlot, I think the Merlot that your sister like normally drinks is probably on that kind of like inkier, darker fruit mm-hmm. yeah. kind of spectrum. Yeah, agreed. And Mel, what about you? Oh, what lingo about me? Wise. Yeah, lingo, like, yeah, what, do you, oh, what sort of terms I mean, do you I, throw around? I think definitely like, you know, after fruit, I think I would want to talk about what's known as body which is kind of like the texture of the wine and like that's how always it... confused what does that mean though well i mean okay think about something that is kind of uh, you know it's really like like light and or like um 
yeah, light and heavy. You okay. know, do you want that kind of wine that's going to kind of like really linger in your palate and feel kind of like a mouthful? You know, it's like like to, a heavy cab solve. Totally. Or like in white wine territory, you think about like an oaky Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. You know, Big. which is going to be like kind of have like a little bit more of like a mouth coating sort of quality versus something that you're like, is it something that you're going to sit and sip and kind of ponder, or do you? Which is to me, how I think about kind of like a fuller-bodied wine, yeah. or do you want something that's going to be like light and juicy and chuggable? Yeah, I like that. So, and also, what about like tannins? Can I just tell someone like I don't want a tannic red? Like tannic is that kind of mm-hmm. mouth dry sort of feel, which I just I can't deal with. Can I just tell the salesperson nothing tannic? Yeah, yeah. I typically find um, that tannins and like that really heavy body are similar. So again, yeah. on that light gamay front doesn't have as much tannins and ten, you know and tannins like are not a bad thing you know like that kind of drying quality you can get in like a range of like heft in a wine it also helps to kind of like structure a wine sometimes you know like the, but if you say you don't want that super mouth drying yeah mm-hmm. thing happening then yeah yeah what about like acidity Well, I feel like that's like the sweetness and acidity are like two of the things that Mm -hmm. are like really closely linked and are really interesting. Like acidity, right, is like, you know, you think of acidity, you think about like lemon juice Mm -hmm. or like citrus. You think of kind of that kind of like puckery sort of um, like mouthwatering quality. And, you know, a wine can have a lot of acidity and that you experience that like, ooh, I'm like, I feel like I'm drinking lemonade or I feel like I'm drinking like a wine that has a lot of tropical fruit flavors, Mm -hmm. like a white wine. You're thinking about like pineapple and citrus and whatever. Like that's definitely going to be like high acid. And then, you know, on the other side, but sweetness and acidity are always going to kind of be in balance. So you can have a wine that has a lot of acidity and also has some sugar in it, but you don't necessarily perceive the Mm -hmm. sugar. You know what I mean? The same way that like, lemonade the more sugar you add you know at a certain point it still tastes tart but there's Mm -hmm. sugar there and sweetness isn't necessarily a bad thing i think that we kind of like have an inclination to like speak poorly Uh of or like assume that a wine a sweet wine is made that way to appeal to kind of like a like lowbrow American consumer who just like wants sweet things. But there are a lot of like really delicious wines that have a little bit of what's called residual sugar in them. So that's just like from like leftover from the fermentation process. So a lot of like kind of off dry Rieslings, which Mm -hmm. can also be like nicely balanced and have some acidity, but also a little bit of a little bit of sweetness. But when Mm -hmm. I so if I say I want a dry white wine, does that mean I want that wine to not be very sweet? I think it's about the perception of yeah. sweetness. If you want a dry white wine, that's going to be like, you know, if you want a bone dry wine, that you you shouldn't really detect any sugar on the palate. I want a grassy Sauvignon Blanc or something. Sure. All right, so let me ask you this. When you're at the wine store, how much are you thinking of what you're buying in terms of what you're going to be eating for dinner that night when you get home or when you get to your friend's house? Zero percent. Really? No, it's what I want to drink in that moment. She's a maverick, folks. Wow. Yeah. So you're like, I'm drinking red even though we're doing this, or I'm drinking, I'm just, this is what I'm in the mood for. It's a hot night. I'm buying this chilled bottle of whatever. Yeah, like 100%. I feel like people get so hung up on the wine pairing thing, and it's like, you know, having like elaborate charts and whatever yeah. about <laughs> like what, but again, it's like, you know, th- I feel like it's su- it's such a complicated thing and so many wines can go with so many different foods and a lot of it has to do with like do you like contrast do you want it to complement like you know it's like so- somebody might want to have like something you know acidic with an acidic dish some somebody might want to have like something that's kind of darker and more yeah. ponderous with an acidic dish it's it really i mean and so I feel like our answer to that is that yeah drink what you like with what you like I mean it's interesting yeah. like you know much has been made the last several years about rosé and like summer water and that sort of thing and how people drink so much rosé in the summertime. And when people are drinking rosé in the summertime, they're not thinking about what it is they're ordering. They're just drinking rosé for dinner because it's hot out and they're outside. Totally. And whether it's steak or fish totally. or pasta or whatever, like they're just throwing it back. And like, there's no reason that same philosophy can't also appeal apply to whatever else it is you like. I mean, yeah. I think the one instance maybe not is if you do have like a big oaky red wine and you're eating Branzino for dinner and it can just overpower it, perhaps. Look, I mean, yeah, you're going to have things, you're going to taste certain 
thing, certain foods with certain wines and have an experience of that. And you're learn, you know, again, you're just learning and it's yeah. like, but you know, if you, if you are your sister and you gravitate towards like, you know, dark inky Merlots and you have that, you drink that with everything yeah. you eat. You're just and used to it. You're just used to it. And then maybe, you know, you're going to like eat that with, you know, drink that with fish. And that's not a proper pairing yeah. per se. But, but you know, maybe you're going to like it. You're not. Like, maybe you're going to decide that you want to drink something different next time. Maybe you're going to decide you never want to drink eat but, fish Or again. you could just be like, I'm going to drink a light wine with this Branzino or halibut or whatever. And that light wine could be a red, could be a rosé, totally. could be a white. Yeah. I also think that my friends don't think about that. So my one bottle contribution isn't going to like make or break it so i don't really sweat the small stuff do you mean that they have several bottles or you're bringing the only bottle of wine no everyone is theoretically bringing a bottle of wine but they're not thinking about for example i went to Wu's wonton a couple weeks ago with them which is a byob but who is them who's your crew at this point oh these are my um friends from college that live in new york where'd you go to college rochester institute of oh, technology yeah, we talked about this shout out to rit rit gosh, cold up there yeah we went to Wu's and everyone brought a red wine and I feel like in the world of Chinese food you're supposed to drink you know like bubbly white stuff with dumplings and those fatty things and whites in general but we had red wine and it was great and fun and it's about the people you're with <laughs> but I, I think it's also it's like you know if you want to think about what you're drinking and what you're eating, I think that's also, you know, it's like yeah. tasting, you know, one wine and being like, oh, this tastes awesome. This red wine tastes awesome with this fish. This other one, I don't like it as much. Yeah. And then you get to, th you know, but break it down yeah, and think about what it is about those wines that you like with what. Yeah, if I'm yeah. going to have Peking duck, I want something to cut through that fat. And it could be a zippy red wine or it could be something sparkling or it could be like a, a white wine high in acid. Um, speaking of red wine and you guys are drinking and bringing wine to dinner, is it me, or do most people drink red wine at the wrong temperature? Yeah, red wine is too damn warm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? I yes. mean, it's, yeah, it is, like, really... Sometimes my roommate will, like, put her open red wine in our um, little, like, credenza that we keep alcohol in, and I'll, like, sneak it into the fridge later because Good. I'm like, you can't do this. I mean, right. I think people have this, like... Misunder fundamental misunderstanding that like red wine is supposed to be drank at room temperature yeah. and room temperature. If room temperature is cellar temperature, yeah. you know, yeah, but room like, temperature is like sixty-eight degrees. Probably, of I really hope that people's apartments are not you know like fifty-five degrees. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I just made that number up, so I'm not sure if that's the exact temperature. But to me, you still want red wine to be cool to the touch. You know? Sorry, so, so say say I bottle buy a bottle of wine, red wine, off the shelf in a liquor store, bring it home on the subway, get home half hour later or whatever, by the time I'm home, and I'm, what should I do with that bottle before we sit down to eat? Dude, honestly, I most of the time with reds, I'll pop them in the freezer for 15 minutes or something. Okay. You know, 30 minutes is going to get you, like, white wine cold, mm -hmm. like, where, where you want that. But 15 minutes is going to, like, take a little bit of that kind of, like, subway body <laughs> heat warmth <laughs> off of it. So that, you know, when you pour it into the glass and you touch it, it's and, and when you, you take a sip of it, it's going to taste, you know, it, it should taste cooler than your mouth. It shouldn't be blood temperature, yeah. you know. And also, as you're eating... And the wine sitting there in the glass, and you're holding the glass, it's going to warm up. The bottle will also warm up. Yeah. Realistically speaking, I don't have more than like three or four bottles of wine in the house at any given time. But I will keep my red wines in the fridge. And maybe that's sacrilege. But I keep my red wines in the fridge, and then I take them out of the fridge like, you know, maybe a half an hour before dinner, before yeah. I want to drink them. Is that what you do, Schultz? Yeah. Yeah. It just it's, it feels like, in terms of that kind of like, oh, like I really want to drink this wine now but it's too warm. Like it's like I would rather take it out of the fridge and drink a glass that's a little too cold yes, than absolutely. drink a glass that's a little too warm and then have it in the, you know, in the fridge or the also, freezer. Also, and like I I'm not going to purport to understand how to keep a wine stable and this and that and cellar temperature and store it, but it's like I know at least, you know, in most places in this country in the summertime when I'm not when I'm at work the air conditioning is not on in my apartment. Mm -hmm. and the apartment gets like hot and I'm thinking like if I have a bottle there all day long in a hot apartment, then it cools down at night, then it gets hot again during the day. Like leaving a bottle of red wine out all like you know, for a month in August is probably not a good idea. 
Yeah, probably Be- not. Better just keep it in the fridge. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, you know, if you're a person who, like, buys a lot of wine, buys cases of wine, like, whatever, you want to have a place in your house, probably, you're probably not doing that in your apartment, where you can keep wine at a regulated temperature and avoid those kind of swings. But that's really, you know, at the end of the day, that's really more of a concern for somebody who's, like, collecting wine. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're like most of us and you have maybe, like, six bottles of wine kicking around, you probably have room in the fridge. You're trying yeah. to say they're, they're, they're the types who are probably not reading the Basically Guide to Wine and, and this much <laughs> no. bon And They're probably listening to this and they're like, what? I can't believe they're saying that. How what? dare you? Don't worry, they turned it off several minutes ago. Um, <laughs> before we let you go, Schultz, uh, what are you drinking tonight? Oh, actually, one of my favorite wines, which is a Chilean Carignan, mm. and it's from Via Lobos in Chile. It's the these people who found this wild bush of Carignan grapes, um, and then made a winery. Just and, one bush? Um, I don't know. There was like a lot. They showed us photos. Were you there? Oh, yeah. Everyone wine, yeah. Oh, that guy. That where, where where will you be partaking in this wine? Um, Alex Delaney's house. Oh, Alex Delaney. Come over if you want. Well, maybe I will. Uh, and and you, uh, Emil? You know, I I don't know if I'm drinking wine tonight, but I really have a craving for some daiquiris. So wow, like wow! Proper, not a frozen daiquiri, people. Just oh, the classic lime juice, like, like simple syrup. Oh, okay. Rum. I want to. Thought all, you were get, like going get, to the tropics tonight. Getting no. all Hemingway on. Us. No, but you know, it's like during the winter time. That's all I want to drink. I just want to drink like sours. I want to drink Would like never think of that. Cold, ice cold, like lime juice cocktails. That's what I want. It's just a margarita, but with cool. rum. I'm gonna go to the gym because okay. Emma and I had a big power lunch today, <laughs> and I was like, nobody asked me what I was gonna, gonna ask you. I'm, I'm gonna go, I have to work off the power lunch. Go home, make some. Di- I'm gonna have to feel like that night was nice. I like. Staying at home on a Friday night. Me and too. Just like, mm-hmm. I've been with around people and working all week. Just like come home, people open a worst. bottle we of kind of say something like gamayish, mm-hmm. chilled, semi chilled red. Cool. Semi chilled kind of life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> semi chill. Can we start a new wine podcast called Semi Chill, Emma? Semi chill kind of life. Yeah. yeah. Well, so. no, we'll make a wine that's like oh. a light bodied red. Oh. A wine that is in sync with the podcast and an Instagram yes. account. In sync's yes. a different different band. Ooh. Uh, Emma Schultz, thank you. Thanks, Mr. Rappaport. Thanks, Bill. Anytime. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.